You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. with us today. Um, shout out to everyone who is joining us virtually. Uh, happy Eastertide. Uh, we are still in the season of Easter, which will take us right through Pentecost Sunday at the end of May. My name is Reverend Vanita. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am the co-pastor of teaching and community here at Forefront. Um, do have a content warning today. Just encourage us all to take care of ourselves. I do have uh, some of my content connected to people with intellectual disabilities. When I was in college, I remember having a friend. We sang together in the gospel choir. Uh, we attended Bible study together, and we were also involved together in a local church. And I remember having a crucifix, a small plastic cross with Jesus hanging on it, and it would sit on top of my dresser. And one day, this friend came to visit me, and uh, she saw this crucifix. Uh, it was small and simple, yet it was a significant symbol of my faith. And when she saw this crucifix, she actually became incensed. Now, while all of the details um, have escaped me, the gist of her rant related to being annoyed that Jesus was still depicted on the cross, when in fact he was resurrected and should be acknowledged only as the resurrected Christ, not a savior hanging in death. So after her explanation in the ultimate display of disgust, she tossed the cross into the trash. The, the cross was sitting on my dresser, the trash was down here, and she just moved the cross and she just tossed it into the trash. And it was so matter-of-factly. So she took it upon herself to attempt to prevent me from communing with my God in a way that made me feel comfortable. Her theological understanding and apparent self-righteousness served as a barrier to what parts of Jesus' life I was permitted to recognize and I was permitted to embrace. By having this symbol in my room, it was a reminder of my connection to Jesus and Jesus' immense love for me. It's so interesting that while I had those feelings, in her mind, she saw it as being disrespectful and sacrilegious. And as far as I can remember, I don't necessarily think I was focusing more on Jesus' death than his life, as Reverend Josh preached on last week. It was a simple, plastic, cheap symbol of something powerful that connected to my Christian faith. 
that Jesus, no matter what I was going through in college, was always with me. It is what Jesus and Jesus' death would be what I would reflect on and focus on whenever I would take Holy Communion monthly on the first Sundays at my Pentecostal church and the Eucharist weekly at my Catholic church. I would do it in remembrance of Jesus. I would receive the consecrated elements and experience spiritual renewal, refreshment. But then there were other times when I didn't necessarily have this feeling of upliftment. There were times when I actually didn't feel comfortable receiving communion because of certain sermons, because a lot of teaching and preaching, where I felt like I wasn't worthy because I didn't live up to the unrealistic expectations that the church had set. I wondered if I had prayed enough. I wondered if I read my scripture enough. Did I become too angry at that person? Did I harbor bitterness in my heart and in my spirit? Did I have too much foreplay with my boyfriend? <laughs> so all of these things would come up for me when it was time to receive communion. Was I pure enough? <laughs> so here we were on first Sundays where in an effort to show our purity, we would actually wear white, the women. The men would wear dark suits. And then sometimes we would put like a little doily on our head. And if we couldn't find a doily or if we forgot that day, we would grab a piece of tissue and stick it on our head with a bobby pin. It looked ridiculous. But anyway, we would kneel before the altar to receive communion. And in our tradition, we had a beautiful, beautiful church, beautiful altar with cushions. You could actually kneel at the altar. So the shifts would go like this. The people who were in charge, had titles, were in high positions, would go first. And then those of us without titles, those of us who didn't necessarily hold significant positions, would follow. And that communion table would be a space of beautiful worship and reverence and gratitude. But the thing is, it seemed a bit exclusive and a bit hierarchical as it related to communion and who was receiving the elements first. And then we would go through all that and we would hear a passage of scripture which felt <clears throat> very, very exclusive and it was a little scary and it made me feel like I really didn't want to receive communion. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. 1 Corinthians 11. It goes a little like this. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or 
passed away. Now, if this, this text does not serve as a barrier to going to communion, I don't know what does. However, as it relates to the context and the historical um, perspective of this particular text, this was Paul's letter. And he was actually referencing the eating and drinking of the cup in an unworthy manner related to those who were excluding the poor. And it seems that those with means, the rich, and those who are privileged would get there first and take all the communion from the other folks, the poor, the working class, before they would get there, and there would be nothing left for them. So Paul was telling them, look, your focus is not even on the Lord's Supper. Your focus is on having a good time, is on partying, because you are becoming very gluttonous as it relates to eating and drinking, so much so until you're getting sick. They were not taking the communion in reverence and in remembrance of Jesus. And even worse, they weren't looking out for their neighbors. So Paul asked them, he says, what's going on? If a self-centered meal is what you want, can't you eat and drink at home? Do you have so little respect for God's people in this community that you shame the poor at the Lord's table? But nonetheless, Paul seems to be ascribing here to the theology that when you do something bad, something bad will happen to you. But Jesus actually debunked all of this during a time when he was with his disciples and they saw a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples asked the question, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or was it this man's parents? And Jesus actually says, neither, right? Neither, so that the works of God could be manifest, right? It wasn't because anyone had sinned. So as we continue to look at communion and the cross, we are actually exploring the barriers to the communion table that exist and how we can actually disrupt gatekeeping. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Angela talked about the Passover meal with Jesus and his followers, which was a short time before his arrest and crucifixion. And even though those who were in attendance didn't fully understand what was actually happening, and it wasn't at that point they understood that it was the institution of the First Communion, Angela, what she brought out was that Jesus' friends who would betray him, deny him, fall asleep on him, doubt him. They were all there. They were all there with Jesus at the communion table. There was no gatekeeping. There were no barriers. And it's interesting to see how our communion practices evolved from that very first communion after Jesus left. If a bishop decides there is some other grave, necessity. And Catholics with intellectual disabilities may be admitted to Holy Communion if they are able to distinguish the body of Christ from ordinary food. Even if this recognition is evidenced through manner, gesture, or reverential silence rather than verbally. In settings where the Episcopal Church and the Evangelical Lutheran Church 
who have common theologies and traditions, where they share worship in their celebration of full communion, they have these guidelines. They have a worship book. And they say that it should include ordained and lay leaders from each of their participating churches. Liturgical leadership also should include the ordained ministers and laity of both churches. And then, sometimes, there needs to be the approval of a bishop or a presiding bishop. Ordained ministers are encouraged to vest or dress in their religious attire. And then, some faith traditions uh, call for you to either be born again or baptized before you receive communion. And there are yet more barriers. Hold on. In Carol Murphy's Washington Post article, Rules of Communion as Varied as Church, she highlights the following. Many Baptist churches used to follow a practice called fencing the table or closed communion, which meant that only church members in good standing could take communion. But these days, most Baptist churches have abandoned that practice and leave it up to the communicant to judge whether they are worthy to take communion. And then, usually, he said the only requirement is that one be a confessing Christian and be baptized as a believer. Most Episcopal congregations freely invite all baptized persons who are free to receive communion in their own churches to partake in the Eucharist. Haynes says, we have always taken a more expansive view than the Catholic Church in that you assume that a person who presents himself or herself at the altar is there in an open, penitent, and receiving intention. Although the Eucharist, as the article goes on to say, is supposed to bring believers together or into communion with each other. The differing views on what it means and who can receive it has a lot to do with how Christian churches define themselves, said Reverend Orsi, who teaches jurisprudence at Georgetown University's law school. It's an issue of identity, said Orsi, also a canon law expert. Each Christian community has its own identity, Orthodox, Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran. These groups diverge in organization, but also in belief. And one of the most important beliefs is the belief in the Eucharist. Since the presidency of Joe Biden, the second Catholic US president, bishops have traded essays on whether politicians supporting expanded legal protection and funding for abortion should be permitted to receive the Eucharist. In fact, when Joe Biden was vice president, he was actually denied communion at a church in South Carolina due to his public support for abortion. And there was an archbishop who made headlines last year by prohibiting Representative Nancy Pelosi from receiving the Eucharist. The next month, she received communion from Pope Francis during a papal mass in St. Peter's Basilica, despite her position in, sport, in support of abortion rights. So many barriers, so much gatekeeping. The list goes on and on. I only skimmed the surface today.
These barriers have caused trauma, elicited fear, discouraged church attendance, and cut off connection to and belief in God. These barriers have caused anxiety, depression, and shame. These barriers have blocked people from the true essence of who Jesus is, a God of love and compassion and mercy, full of grace and understanding. Have any of you ever been excluded or made to feel excluded from the communion table? How did it make you feel? Did you feel any of the feelings that I just laid out? Well, if so, maybe it's time that we question why so many barriers exist. Even in well-established, respected religious spaces, Maybe it's time for us to reflect upon Micah 6 and 8 to do justice, to do what is fair and just to your neighbor, to be compassionate and loyal in your love, and to walk humbly with your God. When we do this, we can actually disrupt gatekeeping. We can start a revolution. We can freely embrace the many aspects of life that Jesus lived from his miracles, to his healings, to his relationships, to all the many ways he was compassionate to so many people who were suffering. And we can also reflect upon his suffering and death and resurrection as we commune in remembrance of him. The People's Institute for Survival and Beyond talks a lot about uh, gatekeeping and their anti-racist work. And, you know, they go on to say when institutions gatekeep, they ensure that the institution perpetuates itself. But the love of Jesus tears down all barriers. There's no gatekeeping in the fierce love, of, as Reverend Jackie Lewis shares with us, in the fierce love of Jesus. Father Richard Rohr says this, the bread and the wine are largely understood as an exclusive presence, when in fact, their full function is to communicate a truly inclusive and always shocking presence. A true believer is eating what he or she or they is afraid to see and afraid to accept. The universe is the body of God both in essence and its suffering. You know, when Jesus was resurrected and he began to connect with a number of people who didn't know where he, who he was, the moment that he shared communion with them and broke the bread, their spiritual eyes became open. And I believe that that is what communion helps us to do. As we receive, we are able to have our eyes opened, to be illuminated as it relates to what is happening around us. Our eyes open to the poor, our eyes open to inequalities, our eyes open to injustices, our eyes open to toxic Christianity posing itself as holy. Donnie McClurkin sings a song that I love, and I will share with you the lyrics, because these lyrics are what the cross means to me. 
And he goes on to say, pastor and singer, well, the cross will always represent the love God had for me when the Lord of glory, heaven sent, gave all on Calvary. He did it just for me. Jesus came and did it just for me. And as it relates to communion and the cross and who gets to receive and who doesn't receive and the barriers and the gatekeeping and the hierarchy and the exclusiveness and the inclusiveness, maybe we don't have things figured out. However, I believe that if we move in faith and we understand that it's an act of faith and humility and it's an act of wonder and expectancy, I believe we can have a spirit of peace and openness with the whole process. It's a step of faith, understanding that we may not understand everything, but we move and operate in a way that shows love. The receiving of love from God, and then we give that love to others. Remember, the first communion didn't have any rules, Everyone was there, Peter, Judas, Thomas. No one was denied. They were imperfect, and Jesus accepted them, and Jesus affirmed them. And the good news is that we are free to come with our focus on Jesus with the spirit of gratitude and self-reflection. One of the theories from Reverend Josh's sermon last week caused him to ask a question that I will ask this week as well. What if our sin wasn't the motive for Jesus coming in the flesh? Rather, God's motivation was to show infinite divine love and to lead us to self-reflection. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned my classmate throwing away my cross. And it made me think about what else we throw away and what other barriers we erect for our own selves because of what we have been taught. What do we distance ourselves from in order to get close with God? What and who do we disconnect from in order to connect and be close to the divine. My college friend undoubtedly had a strong conviction that day. And I had a strong conviction too. So strong enough that I took that cross right out of the garbage when she left. <laughs> Today, we are invited to take back what others have tried to make you throw away. It's time to take it back. We no longer need to live in captivity and bondage to those things, those toxic practices that have kept us away from Jesus. There's no barriers today. There's no gatekeeping today. There is only love. And all we need to do is just receive it and be open to it and know that Jesus is for us today tomorrow, and every day after that. So let us prepare for communion today. Let us prepare 
in person and virtually as well. So I would ask those of you who are joining us online to please gather whatever elements you have to receive today. And for those of us in person, we have these little chalices with most of them being gluten-free wafers. They are indicated on there, the ones that are gluten-free. We do have a couple that are not gluten-free, just to let you know. So pay close attention to that. They also have alcohol-free juice in them so that children can receive and that we can be in solidarity with those who are sober. So what a beautiful time that we have as a church family to share. And I'll let you know when we can all come together because we're going to do this together today. We're going to actually partake and receive together. But I wanted to talk about some things to help prepare our hearts and our spirits for this time. So this is the time that we remember and that we reflect on the love of Jesus. Please remember that we're all connected, no matter what, to God's family. We are family. But remember, no two of us are the same. And all are welcome today to the table, particularly those who've been held back by gatekeeping and barriers. You who are misunderstood, you who are nerdy and quirky, you who have never felt good enough to be in God's presence, you who may, like me, have felt a disconnect in certain faith-based spaces, you who may have been rejected by the very clergy you loved and respected, you who always felt less than, you who would have never dreamed you'd be in a church like Forefront, you who, as Freddie Mercury from Queen says, you who are a bunch of misfits playing to the misfits at the back of the room who don't belong. I'm here to remind you today that through the grace and love of Jesus, hallelujah, you belong. You are loved and affirmed and appreciated. You belong today. And this communion table is for you and it's for you and it's for you. The scripture tells us, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please reflect on those words as you all come and receive today. And then we'll hold it and receive together.
Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.